Thanks for joining us on the Hope Podcast. Hope Community Church exists to love people where they are and help them grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. By pursuing this relationship together, we can change the world. Hey, when you're done listening to this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free app. From there, you can find all of our recent message content. Our app is actually the best place to keep up with everything going on at Hope. If you like what you hear today, we encourage you to share this with your friends or family. Enjoy. Well, what is up, Hope? How are we? Good. Happy Easter. You guys clean up well, ladies, as always. But I didn't know half you guys actually own collared shirts. I am not going to be able to tell the guests apart from our regular attenders now. If I introduce myself, I'm sorry. I didn't have a fancy shirt this year, so I had to borrow one of my wife's. No, Uh, if you are uh, just joining us for the very first time online or at one of our physical campuses, we're so glad that you are here. We hope that you feel welcome, that you feel seen, that you feel loved, that you feel hurt. Uh, I love that we opened up uh, this service with that song, Same Boat. You guys like that song? I'm not of a country, I'm not really a country guy myself. Fish is my favorite band, kind of into jam bands. But when that song first came out, it just stuck in my head. And it's very, very appropriate because the story in the Bible that we're going to be in this weekend is a story that starts with a boat and it ends with a boat, and it literally has the power to change your life. I'm praying that's what it does. But before we get there, I want to tell you an experience that I had with a boat during my life. And it's not a story about some fancy boat. I don't know if you know how much pastors make, but I don't have yacht money. I don't even have pontoon money. But there was a point in my life where I I did have enough money for someone to give me a kayak for free during Christmas. My parents got it for me my last year in college, and I loved that thing. It was a liquid logic trigger. I remember it. And so all spring and all summer, I watched YouTube videos on how to roll and how to paddle and how to write myself. And uh, I, I, I put the kayak in different pools and in different lakes, just kind of practicing. And when I felt like I had the skills down, I called up my friend, Jeremy, who recently got a kayak as well. And I was like, dude, it is time that we plan our first trip to a real river. Uh, so we researched a lot of the rivers in Western North Carolina, which is where we were. So uh, we picked the smallest, dinkiest, slowest river that we could possibly pick the lower green up near Asheville. It's where like eight-year-olds can hop in inner tubes and float down it during the weekends. We thought that we would be okay. So the day arrives and uh, we get our helmets, we get our paddles, we get our kayaks, we pull up to the put-in and uh, we get strapped in and we just launch into the river. And as soon as we do, we noticed there's a lot more white water than we anticipated. In fact, there's a lot more water than we anticipated and it's faster and it's louder than we thought. This did not look like the pictures or the videos that we had seen online when we were researching this river, but we thought, I mean, we're new kayakers, what do we know? Uh, so we, we start going down this river and we noticed something odd at first. It was, uh, there were groups of 10 or 15 people every few hundred yards and they were taking out their cell phones and they were taking pictures of us and they were applauding and we're like, this is weird, but what a welcoming community, this is awesome. Uh, but we figured out why they were taking pictures and applauding just a few minutes later. We went around this bend and we got really close to shore and there was this mountain dude, like long beard, long hair, grateful dead shirt, like my people. And he yells out, you guys are crazy. You're kayaking the green at flood stage. And we were like, oh no, what in the world have we done? 
uh, Jeremy and I looked at each other and we knew that we were in trouble. I don't know if you know this or not, but you should not kayak your first natural river when it's at flood stage. In fact, you should not kayak any river when it's at flood stage, when it's five or 10 feet over what it normally is because it makes the holes more unpredictable. It can kind of wash debris into the river that can trap you. And it makes class one or two rapids easily class four or class five or class five plus. So the water that we were kayaking in, it was deadly and we hadn't realized it. See, we thought that we were going to float a lazy river, not fight a crazy river. And so all of a sudden it was not fun and games anymore. I did not like the boat that I was in and I didn't know and didn't like the direction that I was heading in. Well, we found out a few minutes later that that fear was very, very appropriate. Uh, we came to this, this, this crossroads in the river, this fork, and you could choose the right or you could choose the left. And I guess we chose uh, the wrong way. We went left and about 100 yards down river, we see that a whole huge tree had fallen all the way across the river, been uprooted by the flood. And it was kind of in our path. You couldn't go around it. You had to go over it. And so we thought, no big deal. We'll just kayak over this thing or we'll uh, pull our dry skirts, our emergency release, and we'll just get out of our kayaks and go to shore. Uh, well, we didn't know this is what experienced kayakers call a strainer. And that, that, that means that the water does not care that something's in the way, it's just gonna go right through it. And so the water will take whatever is in it, the tens of thousands of gallons of water, and it's gonna go under that tree and bring whatever's in it with it. And sure enough, that's what happened. Jeremy, my friend, was about 10 yards ahead of me and he got to the tree first. And when he did, the nose of his boat went under that huge tree and he got pinned against the trunk with his torso and he couldn't budge. All that pressure was pushing him forward and he couldn't reach his emergency release either. So I said, well, I got to help my friend out. So I was going to pull up beside him. That's what I did. I pulled up right beside him. I turned. And when I did, I leaned a little bit too much to the left and all the water caught the side of my boat. It turned me all the way upside down and it drug my feet underneath that tree and it pinned me. It pinned me. So the kayak and the tree were at my back and my face was in the gravel and the dirt of that riverbed and I was not moving. And so for 30, 40 seconds, I was struggling, I was straining, and I could not get out. I couldn't move an inch. Now, I'm pretty comfortable in water. I was a competitive swimmer growing up, but this was frightening. So there I was. I was pinned underneath a tree underwater, and I was trapped. And my breath was running out. And all I could think of is, I got to get out of this boat. I have got to get out of this boat. I somehow have to bail, and I have to reach out for help. So over the next few seconds, somehow I managed to get a hold of my emergency release. I pulled it. I remember the cold water of the river kind of entering my kayak, but still I couldn't quite budge. So I, I strained and I kicked and I tried my best. And finally, in one moment, the water caught that kayak. It ripped it off my legs, but it also swept me into the current. And in a moment of panic, almost running out of breath, I just reached my hand up as high as I can, hoping that Jeremy will grab it. And he did. He caught a hold of it and he grabbed onto it hard. And uh, he saved my life. And uh, I was able to kind of help him reach over and pull his emergency release. His kayak went downriver. My kayak went downriver. We never saw them again. And we made the long barefoot march back to our car. We didn't have our kayaks, but we did have our lives. It's a true story. And I share that because uh, I want to turn with you to the story of Peter, who at one point in his life finds himself in a very similar situation. He's on a boat that he doesn't want to be on. He doesn't like the direction that he's traveling. He feels trapped, 
but he doesn't know what to do. I want to take you to Jesus's first interaction with Peter. At this point in time, his name's Simon. Uh, Jesus later goes on to change his name. I'll tell you why in a second. And I thought it's appropriate to go through a story with Peter because as a church, we've been in a letter that he wrote in the New Testament. So how appropriate to kind of wrap up that series and celebrate Easter. But the first time Jesus interacts with Peter, he had just started his ministry. He was walking around and teaching the crowds. And on this particular day, he's at the Sea of Galilee with his back towards the sea, and he's teaching a group of people. Well, the crowds keep getting bigger and bigger and kind of forcing Jesus into the sea. So he says, time out, you guys stay there. He sees two boats on the shore. He hops in one. He says, who owns this? Simon kind of raises his hand. That's our guy. He says, hop in, row me out a few yards. And he uses the sea as kind of like an amphitheater where the, the acoustics are really good. And so he teaches the crowds and he finishes his teaching. And then it says this, and when Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, now go out where it's deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Master, Simon replied, we worked hard all last night and we didn't catch a thing. <laughs> we see Peter and the disciples fishing a whole lot in the New Testament, and we never see them catch a single fish without Jesus' help. We're going to see that again. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. And this time their nets were so full of fish, they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners in the other boat, and soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh Lord, please leave me, I'm such a sinful man. For he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as were the others with them. His partner James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. And Jesus replied to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and they followed Jesus. They got out of their boats. They left behind their old way of life. They left behind their families. They left behind their way of making money. And that decision to get out of the boat and to leave behind everything to follow Jesus would literally transform Peter's life. Because for three awesome years, he got to have the time of his life following Jesus. Uh, shortly after this, his mother-in-law uh, gets sick and is in bed. And Peter's like, Jesus, can you do something about this? And Jesus says, yeah, absolutely. And so he heals her right in front of his whole family. Uh, Jesus, uh, Peter actually gets to walk on water one day. He's the guy that did that. He saw Jesus walking on water and said, hey, can I try that? Something that Peter would say. And Jesus is like, yeah, so he does. Uh, Peter's actually the guy that figures out that Jesus is much more than just a simple rabbi, that, th that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised Savior to come. In fact, at one point, Jesus pulls Peter aside and says, you're going to be the person that I'm going to build my church on, Peter. Like you're the guy that's going to take over my mission after my time here on earth is done. That's what Peter means in Greek. It's Petros. Upon this rock, I will build my church. And so during these three years, maybe for the first time in young Peter's life, he just feels so close to God. I mean, he is, he's walking with them, but he feels this sense of purpose. He feels this sense of excitement, this, this excitement for the future. And I think a lot of us can probably relate to Peter. I think if I had to guess the majority of people watching or at one of our campuses right now, uh, you have some sort of experience with God. 
Odds are you have some experience with the church, some experience with Jesus. That's not everyone, but if I had to guess, most of us have some experience with the church. Maybe you haven't attended in a long time, but you remember going with your parents growing up or with your grandparents, the clip-on ties and kind of the uncomfortable shoes. And you remember the Bible stories with flannel graph on Sunday school, maybe even going away with your youth group to some sort of a youth camp. And it might be that you haven't been to church in a long time, but you do have memories of attending church at one point in your life. In fact, you showed up today and you're like, where's the choir? Where's the organ? Like, I specifically remember handbells on Easter. Where are those things at? But you have memories. And maybe you remember getting baptized. Uh, Maybe you remember that first Bible that your parents gave you or a youth pastor or a pastor gave you. Maybe you remember that feeling of closeness to God, that feeling of purpose that feeling of excitement. But for whatever reason, at some point, uh, your life changed. And now church or your relationship with God or your relationship with Jesus is now more of a memory than a real part of your life. Uh, This actually happened to Peter as well. A lot of us just think Peter went straight from being a disciple to a leader of the early church, but that's not true. On the evening of Jesus' crucifixion, his life sort of falls apart. And with it, his hopes and his dreams, and his relationship with Jesus, so he thinks. You see, after Jesus um, and his disciples celebrate uh, the Passover feast, the Friday, the the evening of the crucifixion, um, he he says, hey, I want to go to the Garden of Gethsemane and pray and kind of prepare my soul for what I'm about to endure, the crucifixion in a few hours. And as they're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane, it says this in Mark 14, on the way, Jesus told them, hey, just so you know, all of you are going to desert me. For the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised from the dead, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee and I'll meet you there. But Peter, he said to him, hey, even if everyone else deserts you, I never will. Peter says, no, Lord, not me. Like even if all these wusses, all these cowards turn tail and they run away, I never will. I am ride or die. And Jesus replied, it's interesting that you say that because I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times that you ever knew me. And Peter says, no, he declares emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the other voices say, yeah, me me too, us too. Well, that resolve gets tested a few minutes later when Jesus goes to the garden and says, hey, stay up with me and pray through this night before I'm betrayed. And they can't even do that. Three times they fall asleep. Three times Jesus says, hey, wake up. And late into the night, Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray Jesus, walks into the garden, and we know the story. He kisses Jesus on the cheek, and in that moment, all these armed Roman guards surround the disciples. There's there's all these armed Roman guards with swords and with weapons, and then there's this one guy, this little boy, maybe 14, 15 years old, named Malchus, who's a, a servant of the high priest. He just pours water on the high priest's hands. That's his job. He's the only unarmed person there. But Peter remembers what he said just a few moments ago where he said, man, even if I have to die, I will never desert you. So in this moment of just courage, this bravery, he pulls out some sword that he had gotten a hold of, and he says, Roman guard, no, Roman Roman guard, no, and he goes after Malchus, the only unarmed person in the garden, and cuts off his ear. And not only is it not brave, but it's also unskilled. Like with a sword, you do this or this or this. You don't do this. That's how you cast the fishing rod for bass, right? So that's all he knows how to do. And Jesus is like, what are you doing, Peter? 
So he says, can you take the handcuffs off me? They're like, yeah. And so he picks up the ear. He's like, sorry about that, Malchus, and kind of sticks it on, heals it miraculously, and then says, oh, yes, please put your handcuffs back on. That's going to do a lot of good. And so uh, Jesus is taken to the high priest's house. And that evening he goes through uh, three illegal trials. And all these trials are in and around this house where he would start there. He'd go to one trial, kind of pass by the house and go to the second. And we'll kind of pick up the story there in John 18. It says, Simon Peter followed Jesus, as did another of the disciples. It's John. That other disciple was acquainted with the high priest. So he was allowed to enter the high priest's courtyard with Jesus. Peter had to stay outside the gate. Then the disciple who knew the high priest spoke to the woman watching at the gate And she let Peter in. And as Peter walks through the gate, the woman asks Peter, hey, you're not one of that man's disciples, are you? And the language kind of points to the fact that Jesus was so close, she could just point to him. And Peter says, no, I'm not. Because it was cold, the household servants and the guards had made a charcoal fire. Remember that. And they stood around it, warming themselves. And Peter stood with them warming himself as well. And so Jesus goes to one of the first illegal trials, then he passes back by the house to a second, and then when he's on his way to the third, it says this, Meanwhile, Simon Peter was standing by the fire, the charcoal fire, warming himself. They asked him again, You're not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it, saying, No, I'm not. But one of the household slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, so didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? I'm not good with faces and names, but when someone removes the body part of a relative, like I tend to remember. <laughs> but again, it says Peter denied it, and immediately the rooster crowed. Um, that third denial, Mark puts it like this, and Mark gets his gospel account straight from Peter. It says that Peter swore a curse on me. If I'm lying, I don't know this man that you're talking about. And it's almost as if he curses the name of Jesus. Like all these obscenities spill out of his mouth. And he says, Would I, could I say that about Jesus if I really was one of his followers? And Luke says that at that moment, as he's cursing, the Lord turned and looked at Peter in Locke's eyes. And suddenly the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you'll deny three times that you even knew me. And Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. Just deep shame, deep sadness, just cursing and denying that he knew Jesus three times around a charcoal fire. And I'm sure as the hours kind of passed on, he had to be thinking thoughts like, (laughs) I mean, who was I joking? I'm not devoted enough. I'm not obedient enough. I'm not honorable enough. I'm not, I'm not holy enough. I knew that I would screw this up eventually, and maybe three years was about as long as I could do this whole religious thing. Like, I just can't do this. And now he's at the point where he's thinking, I can't even claim to be a Christ follower. I just denied it three times. I certainly can't build his church. I can't preach. I can't show myself to these people ever, ever again, even if I wanted to. There's no way that Jesus would take me back. He says, I'm done. I'm done. And after thinking for a day or two, he actually says, you know what? I, I have nowhere else to go, but I have that boat. It's still sitting at the dock, so maybe I'll just get back on it, and I'll go back to my old way of life. And that's what he does. It says in John 21, Simon Peter said, I'm just going to go back fishing. We'll come too, all the other disciples said. So they went out in the boat but they caught nothing all night (laughs) because they never do. 
Um, I can relate to Peter in this evening. And I know a lot of you have heard my story. I try to only share it like two or three times a year, but I only got one testimony and I can't really change it. But we have a lot of guests that haven't heard it. Uh, if you don't know, I grew up in church. I accepted Jesus when I was eight. Uh, I got baptized. I went to Sunday school. I was really involved in youth group. I went to youth camps. Heck, I even went to a Christian college. But um, there came a point my second year of college where I just felt like a failure. Um, I kind of dabbled in drugs and alcohol. It might be weird to hear a pastor say on Easter, but it's true. I, I dabbled in that in middle school and at high school, and I was kind of turning to those things more frequently. And I got to the point that year in college where I just felt like a hypocrite, like what kind of a Bible student struggles with these things? And it got to the point where if I was honest, like I, I, I did want God to be a part of my life, but because of the stuff that I was doing, because I couldn't hold up my end of the bargain, I was pretty sure that God didn't want to be a part of mine. And so maybe out of guilt, maybe out of shame, maybe out of just wondering, like, is there a better way of doing life? I, I left the church, left religion. I put a pause on my relationship with God, and I sort of did life the way that the people that I was hanging out with did it. And so I got heavy into drinking, I got heavy into drugs, and it wasn't very long, 12, 13 months, by the grace of God, where my life just fell apart. But when that happened, I found myself at a crossroads where, where I tried religion and I couldn't be good enough and I couldn't, I couldn't do the things that God wanted me to do. I, I didn't have enough discipline or willpower, so that didn't work out. But if I was honest, I didn't like my life currently either. In fact, I hated it. I didn't like the boat that I was in. I was afraid of the direction that it was taking me, and I just felt trapped. And I have to think that maybe that's some of you today. Uh, maybe out of guilt or shame, maybe out of curiosity, maybe out of just kind of the rush and, and the, the busyness of life. Maybe a year ago, maybe a decade ago, you stepped away from church, you paused your relationship with God. And right now, like you would say, yeah, there absolutely is a God. You know that there's a God. You're just pretty sure that he's not very pleased with you. And maybe even walking into a church today was a little uncomfortable. Like I've been there and your thoughts are, you know, some days I think I want to go back, but I can't do that. Like, you don't know my past. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the things that I'm currently doing right now. I can't go back now. But if you're honest, you would say that you're at a crossroads as well. As you lay in bed at night and, and there's no one else around, if you're really, really honest with yourself, even though religion didn't work out, you don't like the life that you're in now. You don't like the boat that you're in now. You don't like where your marriage is heading. You don't like where your relationship with your children is heading. You're kind of afraid of where these little addictions might be leading to you. And you'd have to say, I don't like the direction of the boat that I'm in currently, but I don't see any other way. I'm trapped and I don't know what to do. Well, that's Peter in this moment. But what Peter is about to find out and what I hope you learn about is the unimaginable grace and the mercy and the love of God that even in our failure, we're never beyond the mercy and the grace of Jesus. See, just a few days after the deepest and the darkest night of shame and failure in Peter's life, it says this, at dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. And he called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? What do you think they replied? No, because they never do. Then he said, throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat and you'll get some. So they did. And they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. And then the disciple that Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. 
And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work. This part's free. Some translations say because he was fishing naked. Interesting, huh? Bible's interesting. I hear they still do that in Fuquay. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. Like the sharp hooks and lures going everywhere. I think it's like cooking bacon with your shirt off. Like you'll do it once, but you won't do it twice. Anyway. I love how Peter responds. He hears that it's the Lord. It's this moment of confusion. Why are you putting your coat on? But he does this. He jumps into the water. He abandons ship. He bails. He jumps out of the water and swims to shore, not knowing how Jesus would react. And it says, the others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore, for they were only about 100 yards from shore. And when they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them fish cooking over a charcoal fire, and some bread. All of these disciples deserted Jesus. All of them have failed them the past two days. You want to know what it looks like when great sinners and great failures come into the, the company of a great Savior? It's a great welcome. They found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire with some bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to shore. There were 153 large fish, in case you were wondering, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And then Jesus served them bread and the fish. See what Jesus is doing? He's replicating the very first time that he met Peter with the addition of some fish tacos, which is cool, right? But he's saying, Peter, I know what happened all those days ago, but it's time for a fresh start. It's time for a new beginning. It is the dawn of a new day, but he does more than that. He says this, after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he's reminding him of that conversation that they had all the way on their way to Gethsemane where he said, even if all these losers desert you, I won't. I love them more than all these other disciples. Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know that I love you. He doesn't add the more than these part. He's been humbled. He's thinking, I don't know how you feel about me. You probably hate me, but I have to be honest. I do still love you. He says, then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. And Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know that I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. And a third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. And then he kind of offers a hand out. He says, hey, you grasp my hand. And Jesus said, then follow me. We got a church to build. You see what Jesus is doing here? It seems kind of cruel. It seems like Jesus is rubbing Peter's failure into his face, but he's not. He's redeeming him. See, Jesus know, knew what happened over that charcoal fire in that courtyard all those nights ago, how Peter denied him three times. And he knew that in the years to come, just the smell of a charcoal fire would just bring tears of shame to Peter's eyes. So he's replacing that moment of shame with a more powerful moment of forgiveness. So that from now on, when he smells that smell of charcoal, he won't go back and see the face of his shame and his failure. Instead, he'll go back and remember the face of his forgiving and his graceful Savior. And he says, Peter, your purpose is still the same. My plans for you haven't changed. I know you failed. Everyone does, but take my hand because we have a church to build. And that, my friends, is the message of Easter. 
If you're here and you say, when it comes to God, when it comes to religion, when it comes to Jesus, I can't do it. I am just feel like a failure. I just want to say, welcome to the club. It's called the church. We meet here on Sundays. That's why Jesus came to earth for failures like me and for failures like you. The Bible says that when we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. And what you need to hear is that at some point in eternity past, God looked down on all of the sons and the daughters that he loved so much. And he said, they're all in the same boat. They're all in this boat of sin and brokenness and it's leading them to destruction. It's leading them away from me. And so that's why he sent his son to redeem us, to die on the cross for our sin, to take on all of the anger and all of the wrath that he felt towards sin so that he could treat us with grace and mercy. Listen, because of the cross, as you sit here today, God is not angry with you. He is not done with you. He is not fed up with you. He is not distanced with you. Jesus took on all of that and all that's left is love. And the moment I got that, my life changed. I'll never forget in my, my darkest hour, a mentor pulled me aside and said, Chase, your problem is not the drugs. Your problem is that you don't believe that Jesus loves you as you are right here, right now. And for the first time in my life, I believed that. And I reached out not to a judge, not to someone distant, but I reached my hand out to a savior and I have never been the same. And maybe that's what you need to hear today. If you're thinking when it comes to this whole God thing, this whole Jesus thing, this whole church thing, I want it, but I can't do it. I'm gonna fail. I'm gonna let God down. I can't do it. You need to hear the message of Jesus is not do this or do that. It's, it's already been done. But see, the cool thing is Jesus didn't just die. He was buried. And three days later, he rose from the grave. That's the historical reality that we are celebrating here today. And in that incredible act, Jesus conquered over the very things that are trying to drag you down. And today, Jesus stands as a victorious king, offering you nothing less than that same kind of victory. Because of Easter, new life is possible. Change is possible. I'm a living testimony of that. So are thousands of people around you right now. Your marriage can be restored. You can have victory of your habits and your hangups and your addictions. You can have joy and hope and purpose. And those are some of the best words that you can ever hear. Because of the resurrection, you can have a fresh start, a new beginning, a clean slate, you can say good night to your shame and your failure, and you can say good morning to grace and good morning to hope. See, Easter teaches us that Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And he's offering that to you right here and right now. But you have to get out of the boat. You have to bail. You have to abandon ship. And you have to reach out to the hand that he is holding out to you. See, today could be the dawn of a new day, but you have to make a choice. One of the most powerful questions that you can ever ask yourself is when I get to where I'm going, where will I be? See, we all have a trajectory. We're all heading in some direction and eventually we're all gonna get to the same place, eternity. And when you get there, where will you be? See, Jesus is offering you a new trajectory and he's offering to take away your shame and your doubt and your fear and that emptiness and that pain and he's offering you hope 
and joy and forgiveness and purpose. But you have to get out of the boat and you have to reach out to him. And so in the next few moments, I want to give you opportunity for a fresh start, a new beginning. So across all of our campuses online in the room right now, if we could bow our heads and if we could close our eyes. Maybe you haven't prayed in decades. Maybe you've never said any words to your father, but if you're here right now and you don't like the boat that you're in and you want a fresh start and you want this to be the dawn of a new day, I'm going to encourage you to pray something like this with me. You don't have to do it out loud. You don't have to use the same words. And there's nothing magic about this. But maybe for the first time or maybe for the first time in a long time, would you just pray something like this? Father, I don't like the boat that I'm in. I'm afraid of the direction that I'm heading And until about 30 minutes ago, I felt trapped. But I heard about your love. And I heard that you're not distant. I heard that you're not judging. I heard that you poured all of that out on Jesus. And that right now, you're offering me forgiveness and hope and a fresh start and a purpose. And it sounds too good to be true, but that's what I want. So Jesus, would you forgive me? Would you welcome me back? And would you give me the same power that you rose from the dead with? Would you change my life? I'm reaching out a hand to the hand that you're holding out to me. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's keep our heads bowed and our eyes closed. If you prayed that prayer, that is the best prayer, the best decision you could ever make. And I want to encourage you to tell someone. I also want to ask you to do something courageous and bold right now. And it's not for us. We're not going to chase you down. But I want you to have a memory, a memory of an interaction with your Heavenly Father that hopefully replaces older memories that you might have had with shame with the church. And if you prayed that prayer for the first time or the first time in a long time, I just want you to reach out your hand and raise it. Just raise it right now as if you're reaching out to the hand that God is holding up to you. Thank you. Thank you for that. That's awesome. Let me just pray over you. Father, thank you for today. Thank you that we serve a risen Savior. Father, I pray that all of us walk out of here changed, more likely to run to you instead of away from you. Father, would you just help us live out the purpose that you have called us to? We glorify you, King Jesus, our risen Savior, our present Lord. May you be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Hope Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message and encourage you to share it with your friends and family. If you live in the greater Raleigh-Durham area in North Carolina, we'd love to meet you at one of our weekend gatherings. For campus locations, service times, and information on our children and student environments, check out gethope.net. To make sure you don't miss our next message, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button. We would like to invite you to support what we are doing by visiting gethope.net slash give. Through generosity of people like you, Hope can run programs like our food pantry, homework club, project classroom, and many more.